are continuing today in our uh, In the Wilderness series in the book of Numbers. We're in chapter 19, so I would encourage you to open to that. I thought through a number of illustrations that I thought might be helpful in talking about this today and realized it was just going to be a waste of time for me to try to add my super clever illustrations to what God's already given us because this chapter is an illustration. And so as we read through the text of God's Word, when we stand at the beginning, we, we do so to symbolize our reverence for God's Word. And I won't ask you to do that now. We don't do that as a form of legalistic um, ritual, but to remind ourselves as we begin the service that this is the Word of God, and it is sacred and holy. So, in Numbers 19, we'll read through this chapter. It's a strange chapter. We've seen a number of strange chapters in Numbers, and we'll see more as we go. We'll begin with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish and that has never been under a yoke. Give it to Eleazar the priest. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eleazar the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the tent of meeting. <clears throat> Excuse me. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned. It's hide, flesh, blood, and offal. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool, and throw them onto the burning heifer. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonially unclean till evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They shall be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance both for the Israelites and for the aliens living among them. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the, on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel. Because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him, he is unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. 
and every open container with a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. For the unclean person, put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or someone who has been killed or someone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle the unclean person on the third and seventh days. And on the seventh day he is to purify him. The person being clean, being cleansed must wash his clothes and bathe with water. And that evening he will be clean. But if a person who is unclean does not purify himself, he must be cut off from the community because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him and he is unclean. This is a lasting ordinance for them. The man who sprinkles the water of cleansing must also wash his clothes and anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean till evening. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean and anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. This is the word of God read in your hearing with all the authority of God himself. Let us receive it in faith. Father, as we seek to know you better, as we seek to surrender ourselves, to submit to you, I pray that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to your word, that we might see and perceive and submit. Lord, help us not to resist what you have for us. Change us, Lord. Make us what we cannot make ourselves. Purify us by the blood of your Son, applied by your Spirit and faith. We pray all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in considering today's text, uh, we need to remember that it is in the context of the previous several chapters, and we need to, to consider it, we need to understand it in that light, particularly in light of Korah's rebellion in chapter 16, to which 17, 18, and, and today's chapter 19 are really in many ways a response. In fact, we really need to go back to chapter 15 to be able to see this, to be able to, to understand how all of these things fit together in God's plan. So uh, remember, as we're doing this, that the Bible is not some random collection of religious writings. Uh, it's not a collection of obscure ancient documents. It's the comprehensive story of what God is doing in his creation from beginning to end. The Lord has given us his word to reveal himself, not to confuse us. So you probably have heard lots of people say, oh, the Bible is hard to read, it's confusing. And 
there are aspects of what of, of it that are that's true in that anything we read takes a little effort anything we read from another culture or another time takes a little more effort anything that is deep and profound requires effort so yes this you're not talking about a children's board book or something here you're talking about something that requires effort anything worthwhile does but as we read God's word, he did not write it to hide himself, to give us a magic code or to confuse us, but to reveal himself so that we can know him. We need to understand it that way and to pursue it, to feast on it with a passion suited to its nature and importance. Okay, so backing up to chapter 15, <coughs> excuse me, having arrived at the promised land and having turned away from it for a lack of faith in God, the people of God have been sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. <clears throat> Until that entire rebelling generation had passed. So then we get to chapter 15, and in chapter 15, the Lord includes more instructions for his people. He's already given the law in Exodus and Leviticus, and now in Numbers, he's, he's given some instructions here. In chapter 15, he reiterates this, uh, some of these instructions, reminding the people that those who belong to the Lord must live set apart for the Lord. If we're going to be God's people, he's called us to be holy, to be set apart for him. Now, immediately on the heels of this instruction in chapter 15, chapter 16 gives us the story of Korah, a Levite with special status for serving with the holy things, yet grasping for the priesthood that is not his and rebelling in the process against God's appointed authorities because sinful hearts resent God's sovereignty. Then in 17 and 18, we find the Lord affirming Aaron as his appointed priest. And he gives this affirmation by giving new supernatural life a resurrection, if you will, to a dead stick, the staff that represents authority, as he uh, causes Aaron's staff to bud and blossom and produce almonds. And then he goes on to reiterate the blessing and burden of the priests and Levites. And so we see that in, in chapter 17 and 18, that the Lord assigns the roles, responsibilities, and rewards for those who serve him. Now, interestingly, after the Lord affirmed Aaron's priesthood, the people were terrified. It struck me as, as peculiar that they seemed to be more terrified after the budding of the staff than they were when they saw the ground open up and swallow Korah and his folks. More terrified than when the fire from God came out and consumed the 250 leaders who sought to uh, usurp the authority uh, by presenting fire and incense at the altar but now we have a budding staff and they're terrified we're all gonna die so as they're saying we're all lost they're overwhelmed why is that well coming to a right understanding of god and and his authority will do that to us it spotlights our wretchedness and we see that we're unclean and cannot approach the holy God. The better we see God, the better we see what a 
wretch we are. How poor and naked and blind and dirty. We can think we're pretty good measured up against somebody else. You can look at the person next to you and say, well, I'm, I'm okay next to this person. <laughs> I'm fine. You can look at the pastor and say, well, I'm, I'm better than him. But when we compare ourselves with ourselves or we compare ourselves with people down here, according to our own understanding of what we think is acceptable, that's one thing. The reality shows up when we compare ourselves to God. And when we see Him and His light shines on us, we can't hide. And we too end up face down like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he saw the glory of God. Like the people here finding conviction and, and they will still deal with rebellion, but they find conviction here that they are unworthy to be in God's presence. Moments before, they were claiming, aren't we all God's people? We should all be in God's presence. They see Aaron's staff, bud. We're lost. The better we see God, the better we see ourselves, and the more our nakedness is revealed. So here, in the shadow of these events and this conviction, the Lord establishes a unique ordinance by which to deal with the ongoing defilement of his people. Our core reality for today is that the Lord gives his people the means and responsibility to deal with sin's defiling effects. Okay, it's up for you on your screen. It's in your program. I'm going to read it for you again because I want you to get this. This ties our thoughts together as we look at this passage. This is that, that melodic line that runs through it because you and I are not going to realistically go and, and find a red heifer and slaughter it in front of a priest and burn it and keep water for the uh, ritual purification. That, that's not how things are in the new covenant. But there is a picture and we need to understand how this works. The Lord gives his people the means and responsibility to deal with sin's defiling effects. All right, so uh, let's take a, a quick spin through the text. We want to look at it, um, and I will do my best to make it as quick as I am personally capable of, and we all know better than, than that. Brevity is not particularly a, a gift. So as we're working through this, um, the first thing that we see is that the Lord calls this a requirement in verse 2. This is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Okay, tell the Israelites to do this, to bring a red heifer. Now notice one really quick thing. When God says this is a requirement, and that requirement, this law that he's establishing, is to help the people to be able to be cleansed, to cleanse their conscience, so that they're not overwhelmed by the fear and the guilt that they were dealing with before, that should tell us something about God's law. I think in, in modern evangelicalism, if you will, in, in, in our day, we have a tendency to think law bad, gospel good. But the law and the gospel are two sides of the same coin. 
God reveals himself in the law, and the law is given actually as an act of grace. It's not law versus grace. The law is moving us toward the understanding and accomplishment of God's grace. That's how we get to this place. And so as God gives this law, requiring them to do it, and twice after this he calls it a lasting ordinance, something that will be maintained throughout the generations. It's really important to God. Why? Because it is for the good of his people. It's actually to free them from the guilty conscience and the regular defilement that they go through. They no longer have to wonder, what am I going to do? Because, you know, I, I can't, I, I know now, I recognize that I can't be near the holy God as an unclean, sinful person. So what will I do? God gives them the means to deal with that. All right, so having, having seen that just in the, in the opening uh, mention there that this is a requirement of the law, Notice what he says. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish that has never been under a yoke. Uh, without going into details in this, because we're not going to spend a, a lot of time focusing on the details of the sacrifice, something important you need to recognize. This is the only place, this is a unique, uh, a unique offering here. It's unique in that it's the only place where you see a female animal specified. All right? That's, it's not a, an ox or a goat. It's not a bull. It's a heifer. It's the only place that we see that. Literally, it's a cow, but, uh, but the, the connotation of it is being a young cow, presumably an unbred cow. So the, this is the picture that you have. This is also the only place where the color of the animal is specified, that it matters. That's weird, right? So we got, we got a, an unusual animal to begin with and that it's a female, not a bull, it needs to be never yoked. It needs to be a young, uh, unused, if you will, heifer. We're, we're familiar with the without blemish, the, the perfect thing. We've seen that in all of the sacrifices representing the holiness of God. You cannot come before God with any blemish. This redness, many of the commentators that I read see this redness uh, in the animal as representing the blood, as the color representing the blood. And, and we can look back and say representing the blood of Christ. I don't know, maybe. The text doesn't tell us. That's as good a speculation as any for why. I don't think it matters why. At least not in a major way, because if it did, he would have told us. And he didn't. But it's a unique sacrifice. It's the only kind of sacrifice that we've seen like this. And when I say sacrifice, I really mean offering. Because it's not sacrificed in place of, uh, of someone. It's not sacrificed at the altar. It's the other unique thing about it. This heifer is to be, to be slaughtered outside the camp. Normally, the sacrifice would be slaughtered by the priest at the altar and burned on the altar. In this case, it's not. It's to be taken outside the camp where unclean things are taken. That's what they do after the sacrifice. They get rid of the unclean parts after sacrificing on the altar. But this one is slaughtered not by the priest, but in front of the priest. He's overseeing it, but he's not doing the work. And the person that slaughters it needs to be a clean person. It can't be an unclean person or it defiles the offering. So a clean person does it, and in the offering, 
in the slaughtering of this animal, that clean person becomes unclean. The priest who is overseeing it is to dip his finger in the blood of the animal and sprinkle it toward the tent of meeting. He's not at the tent of meeting, he's outside the camp. But to symbolize the sacredness of this, he sprinkles the blood toward the tent of meeting. And the priest who has dipped his finger in the blood of this offering is also unclean. In fact, everybody connected with this has to be clean and becomes unclean in the process. To provide this offering that will cleanse those who are defiled by the effects of sin. This purification offering represents sinfulness. And it's a, a pretty good foreshadowing of what we'll read later in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, no sin in him, perfect, without blemish or defect, became sin for us so that by the cleansing we receive through his blood, we can become the righteousness of God. You might remember that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified outside the city, at Golgotha, at Calvary. Outside the city, outside the camp, as it were, because Jesus became sin for us. And the uncleanness that he stood under for us, standing under this debt that we could not afford, he bore our sin outside the camp. Now this red heifer is going to be burned up completely, not burned up, uh, not, not offered to the priests as we see with the other sacrifices, uh, not partially burned uh, um, with, with the unclean parts and then the sacrifice burned on the altar. None of that stuff going on. Completely burned up, all of it, into ash, and that ash is to be stored and kept in a clean place, ceremonially clean place, so that this offering, which is unclean in the sin, made clean in the, in the offering of it, then will be added, some of the ash added to a jar, with fresh water put into that jar to mix it up, so that the, the blood that is in the ash, the blood sacrifice, mixed with this water, some renderings would call it living water, this fresh water idea that the NIV talks about uh, appears to be a, a running water, a clean, clear water, and has the connotation of a living, moving water, not a stagnant, stored water. Now that water is kept in ritually clean jars, purified jars. If you remember Jesus at the wedding at Cana in uh, John chapter 2, they have water stored in jars for the, for the rites of purification. Same idea. We have these many uh, water rituals that take place for cleansing, for purification. Now here, Jesus is, is pictured. They don't understand it yet. We do. So we have this strange ritual. The sacrifice for sin takes place at the tabernacle, at the altar. And the priest, the mediator, does this. And that sets people right with God. However, along the way, that, that 
happens on Yom Kippur, once a year, the Day of Atonement, the priest goes in, offers a sacrifice for his own sin, then offers a sacrifice for the sin of the people, and the people are made right with God through that sacrifice. They have other sacrifices that they do throughout the year in their various festivals and at various times. But this is for the daily cleansing, the regular cleansing when something happens to defile you. When you encounter a dead body, you are unclean. We've seen that earlier in Numbers, very clear. Anything dead has to go outside the camp. Anybody who touches anything dead has to be outside the camp, and they're unclean. For a human, it's even longer. It's a seven-day unclean period. There's a, a, a sacredness in humanity which makes the uncleanness of our sin that much heavier than the effects of sin on everything else. Now, as we see this, this ritual put in place, what this does for the people is every time, and keep in mind, they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation dies. You're going to have a lot of funerals in 40 years, right? You got all these people, there's death, there's, they're going to encounter graves of other people who have already died. Who knows what's going to happen? Somebody dies in the tent. You're having, having uh, you know, dinner, watching the Super Bowl as you're traveling through the wilderness in, in, uh, in Canaan there or near Canaan. And they keel over. Well, what are you going to do? You're unclean. You, did, you didn't do anything to cause it. You didn't kill them. You're just there. And death, which comes because of sin... It's the effect of sin is present with you even though you, have, you didn't do it, you didn't cause it, you didn't choose it, you're still defiled by it. You're made unclean. If they die in your tent, <coughs> excuse me, if they die in your tent or if you die in your tent, whoever is there is unclean because they're inside that tent. If there are any open containers, it's unclean, it's defiled because death, the effect of sin, defiles. It corrupts everything it touches. And God makes a way through this offering, through this ritual, to set them right. But notice what has to happen. When you are unclean, you have to go through this, and a clean person from within the community, also one of God's people, who is ceremonially clean, they're not defiled, they're not corrupted, has to take that branch of hyssop, many commentators uh, see that hyssop as a consistent picture of faith. It's, a, it's an illustration of faith. I'm going to defer to those who know a lot more than I do. But what I do know for sure is we apply the blood of Christ by our faith. And they apply the blood of this offering through the hyssop. So it fits. And this clean person has to intervene because you can't sprinkle yourself. You can't get that hyssop, dip it in and sprinkle yourself and now you're good. A clean person from within the community has to do that for you. You have to wash your clothes. You're responsible for that. You have to bathe yourself. You're responsible for that. But that ceremonial cleansing with the, with the water of purification and the hyssop branch has to come from somebody else who is part of God's people and is not defiled themselves. That's pretty significant. There is a requirement, a responsibility. That person can't make you clean. Only God can do that. 
That's why this is a required law. You do it God's way or it means nothing. Not only that, but you're required to get right. Notice that he says, the person who does not do this, if you're defiled and you're unclean for seven days, you have to have the water applied on the third and the seventh. And if you don't do this, the implication here is that you're unwilling to do it. You neglect it. It's not that you know, you're the only one there and there's nobody clean to, to apply it to you. The implication here is when you choose not to take responsibility to deal with that sinfulness, with that uncleanness, you're to be cut off from God's people. And if you'll remember from our previous times together, that's a euphemism for either execution or banishment. You're cut off. Now, what is all this going to mean for us moving forward? Well, notice how this chapter fits the overall context of the book of Numbers. Remember that our core reality for the book of Numbers, you can jot it down if you haven't already. If you've been here, you probably know it. You've already filled in the blanks. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. That's the picture we see in the overall story of the book of Numbers. God's people do unfaithful things, and they pay the price for those unfaithful, th unfaithful things. Easy for me to say. But God never fails to keep his covenant promises. God is faithful even when we are not. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. Sin must be dealt with. The Lord is unwavering in his demand for holiness. Remember, if we're going to be his people, we have to live set apart for him. This is the call to Israel. It's still the call today. We don't get to come to Jesus and claim his grace and not live for him. He will not be Savior where he is not Lord. Now, with this in mind, the Lord is unwilling in his demand for holiness, but we live in a sinful world. That's just reality. We come from sinful stock. As Jeff read from Psalm 51 earlier, David prayed, I, I was sinful from birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Before I even made a choice to do right or wrong, I was already sinful on the inside. God has higher demands for us than that. So even when we've been forgiven, because we live in this sinful world and we come from this sinful stock, Maybe we haven't even consciously done anything sinful and we've already been forgiven for our sins, saved by grace. We are surrounded by that which defiles and it impacts us. Now, it doesn't take a lot of brains to look around and see that we live in a filthy world, don't we? Somebody say amen if you know we live in a filthy world. I mean, I am constantly struggling with my attitude when I see the filth and vileness. And then I think back, man, it was so much better when I was a kid. Right? Anybody ever feel that way? Oh man, it was so much better. And then I think about what it was when I was a kid. It was filthy and vile then too, but that was more socially acceptable to me. We were always in a sinful, filthy world. Now we're getting deeper and darker and we're not ashamed of it. We sin out in the open today. We brag about our sin. We have parades for our sin. 
We work it into commercials. We find ways to go out of our way to be crass and vile because that's who we are and we're proud of it. No, we're surrounded by sin. And even those who are saved, even as God's children, we find ourselves corrupted, defiled, and dirty because this sinful world we live in is filled with death and that death comes from sin. Nonetheless, never, <clears throat> excuse me, nevertheless, the Lord never fails in his covenant promises to those who are his. And he provides the means of our daily ongoing cleansing from the effects of sin around us. So let's spin this forward. We got the text. We get it. We don't need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out the, the details of the sacrifice. How does that apply now? What do we need to see? We're going to look at some scriptures as we go through here. First, jot this down. Jesus Christ atoned for sin once for all. Pretty straightforward. Jesus Christ atoned for sin once for all. You can turn from Numbers to the book of Hebrews toward the end of the uh, New Testament. It's really kind of the middle-ish of the New Testament, but toward the end of your Bible. After the Timothy letters and Titus and before James. Find Hebrews chapter 9. No, I got to read it. I got to read the whole thing. I was going to shorten it for you. Nope. Starting with verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. If you've been with us, you might remember that from previous studies. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, in the previous chapter here, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything, verse 6, had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Verse 11, when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. By his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption 
Notice these next two verses here. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Ceremonially, ritually clean. How much more then? Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We'll stop there. Jesus Christ atoned for sin once for all. That is the foundation of our gospel. The good news is that even though we are dead in sin, God is rich in mercy and he loved us so much, not because we were lovable, but because of his loving nature, he chose to set his affection on us. And because of his great mercy, he saved us by sending his son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal, everlasting Life. Jesus Christ atoned for sin once for all. But notice also our second point. Christ's atonement must be applied by faith. Christ's atonement must be applied by faith. From Hebrews, turn back just a, a little ways to the book of Romans. When you get to Romans, find chapter 3. We're going to focus in on 325, but I'm going to read some of the surrounding verses to make sure we understand what we're talking about. I love hearing those pages turn. That's a, so we need a, need a Bible app that has the sound of pages turning as you're going there, so I, that I get more satisfaction out of that. Okay. Some of you can work on that. Romans 3, we'll start with verse 21, focus in on verse 25. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Hear that again. The righteous, this righteousness from God, okay, it's, it's God giving his righteousness, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile here is his reference. For all have sinned, every single person, all of us dead in our sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Okay, so the redemption came by Christ. Jesus did the work. It's all him, nothing of us. But notice what he says in 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. You feel these Old Testament references. Through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, unpunished, waiting for this sacrifice to carry them through. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, we can't not judge sin, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Christ's atonement does the work, but it must be applied by faith. Most of you in this room will be familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. 
right? We talk about that, that passage a lot. For it is by grace you're saved. Grace is a gift given, not earned. It is unmerited favor, God showing kindness to you that you do not deserve. By grace you're saved. Period. You don't, you don't get saved because you're good. You don't get saved because you have holy thoughts and, and your proclivities are not prurient. I like to throw that word out every once in a while. Since you don't have pro, uh, prurient, see how well I'm doing? Prurient proclivities, now you're good enough for God. That's not how it works. We all have sinful, dirty, prurient proclivities. We're bent towards sin. Our free will always chooses flesh. Always chooses sin. It's God's grace that saves us. But how does that happen? It, by grace you're saved through faith. It's not just like, you know, when you, when you go to the Flag Day Parade and they throw out the candy from all that, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? They toss it out there and just say, hey, everybody gets it. Or Oprah, you get a car, you get a car, everybody gets a car. You have to actually take hold of it. The gift is given, that's the grace, but you have to unwrap it and receive it. That's the faith. It's trusting that the gift is yours, trusting that the gift is sufficient, trusting that Christ did all that can be done and that he wants you to receive it. That's how it's applied by faith. Now we see in, in Numbers 19 that there has to be the decision to apply the provision for the cleansing. Every sacrifice that is offered in the Old Testament has to be offered in faith or is not received. Later on, after, uh, after Israel's history has, has moved along, they are continuing to worship in the temple and offer the sacrifices and check all the boxes. And God says, I hate your sacrifices. I despise your worship. It just smells like death to me. Your worship smells like defilement. Why? Because they're not offering it in faith. As Isaiah said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Christ's atonement must be applied by faith. Notice next that this atonement that, that, that he makes for us is all we need. He's paid it all. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. But sin's effects have impact. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, but sin's effects have impact. In Genesis 2, you can look it up for yourself, but in Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, the Lord commands the man and the woman, you can eat from anything out here. That's all great, but not that tree. If you do that, death. Sin brings death. It's the nature of it. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's what sin earns. All sin, any sin, separates us from God, the source of life. We need to be aware of that. Sin has an effect, and death is that effect. Romans 5 uh, says in a couple of places, verse 12, verse 17, that sin entered through one man, through Adam, and through that one man, because sin entered, we all sinned. 
We all died in Adam. John 13, you can turn there. Let's turn to John 13. If you're still in Romans, back up to the, uh, to the left just a little bit. We see in John 13 a, a familiar scene. You've probably all seen it in movies or uh, presentations. Hopefully we've all read it in the scripture. But this is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now there is a, there is a greater context and picture so what I'm bringing to you here is not the main point from this passage, but it is a supporting point that connects with what we're doing here. So I want to have you focus in when we get there to verse on verse 10. All right, but we're going to start with verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world <clears throat> excuse me, and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Man, I'd love to just preach those, those two verses, that verse right there. That's another time. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. Okay, well, all this so far is just setting up the scene. That's all it's doing. It's telling us what's going on, helping us to understand what Jesus is thinking, what's on his mind, what's happening among his, his friends. He's, all, he's aware that the devil has already gotten a hold of Judas's heart. And he responds this way, verse 4, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. The master becomes a servant. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He recognized, and that servant nature is really the main point of this passage, but Peter notices, you're the master. You can't be washing my feet, are you kidding me? And Jesus responds, verse 7, You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, In my, in my mind, in my hopefully sanctified imagination, I picture Jesus chuckling as he says this. That's not in the text. I'm adding that. A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. Remember, they're walking around barefoot, sandals in the dirt and all, all this. A person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean. Though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. But notice what he says in verse 10. When you've been cleaned, when you've been thoroughly cleaned, you just got to wash off the part that gets dirty when you're walking around. Christ's sacrifice, his atonement was sufficient. It was complete. Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left. There is no wrath left for you. God has no anger and punishment left for those who are under the blood of Christ. He takes all of that. But 
we still walk around in a sinful world. It's like walking through a landfill. You get done, you're going to stink, right? Doesn't matter how clean you are. You're going to have that on you. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, but sin's effects have impact. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, The feet want constant washing. The daily defilement of our daily walk through an ungodly world brings upon us the daily necessity of being cleaned from fresh sin and that, and that the mighty master supplies to us. The daily necessity of being cleaned from fresh sin and that the mighty master supplies to us. We have a constant need for a daily refreshing, a washing of the feet. Ephesians 5 talking about how submitting to one another in Christ looks in the body of Christ, speaking to husbands about how they're to love their wives. It says, husbands, love your wives. Notice this part. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, a radiant bride, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The job of the husband toward the wife is to do what Christ did for us, for his church. Cleansing, cleaning. We are going to deal with sin. Our feet want constant washing. And while we've been made right with God through Christ once for all, we still get dirty. And we need to wash off. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 32, and, uh, when Paul is writing, talking about sinful attitudes in the church at Corinth taking place largely during communion and their love feasts, he warns them, verse 28, he says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In verse 31, he says, If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. The Lord does discipline his children. That's different than his wrath and punishment. There's nothing left. That all fell on Christ. But he disciplines us when we get off the path to get us back onto the path. He cleanses us. He refines us as gold refined in a fire to burn up and get rid of all the junk that defiles that gold. In the same way, we are, are cleansed as we examine ourselves so that we don't live as those who don't belong to him. Notice this. Christ's church is the means of regular cleansing from that which defiles. I'm going to read this again slowly because this is a point that I think American modern Christians don't like. We have a, a y'all know I love John Wayne. We have this, this cowboy mentality that we're going to go out and, and, and do our own thing. I can I can handle my own business. I do what I want. I'm going to ride solo on this pony and nobody gets in my way. That's not 
what God has called us to. Christ's church is the means of regular cleansing from that which defiles. Okay, we saw in uh, Jesus doing the washing in John 13. In verse 14 of that, he challenges his disciples. He says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now he's speaking primarily about the humility of serving one another, but what is the nature of service he's talking about? Making one another clean. Jesus pays for our sin. Nobody can do that for you. i got to deal with my own sin. But as we walk together as brothers and sisters, I serve you, you serve me by saying, hey, let me help you get rid of that dirt that's defiling and corrupting you. It's important for us to recognize that part of the role of the church is not just to gather on Sunday morning and sing songs. That's, that's wonderful. And there are glorious, transcendent things that happen when we gather. But the primary purpose of being the church is not just to gather once a week. We're to do life together as disciples, brothers and sisters, who rejoice when others rejoice and weep when others weep, who recognize when our brothers and sisters get a little sideways, we got to bring them back because that's what love does. We have a tendency to think of it like, you know, the, the brother whose little sister is a tattletale. Chuckle if that's been your experience in life. Right? I know my brother's chuckling already, even though he's the younger brother. When you, when, when you have that sister who's a tattletale, right, you know you, you don't go around them. You're going to do what you're going to do over here, and you don't, you don't want to go deal with the tattletale because they're just going to run into mom. Act like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you're an only child and you didn't have any, any sisters. But that's not the picture of the church. Not a bunch of tattletales getting up in your business so they can look better than you by pointing out what you're doing wrong. So throw that away. That's not the church. That's a caricature that the devil has put into our minds and played throughout the media. The church is not that judgmental person peeking in your window to see what you're doing so they can look down on you or tell you how bad you are or tell others and start rumors and gossip. Throw that away. Gossip is a heinous sin. It is a cancer in the body. That is not love. The picture of the church is a family that says, you know what? You're better than this. You don't belong there. What, what, are, you, what are you doing that for? That's not who we are. Don't forget whose name you wear. Don't forget who you belong to. That's the love of Christ through his body to one another, helping to cleanse one another regularly from the defilement of the effects of sin that we encounter every day. It is the love that says, hey, what are you, what are you doing watching that show? Why are you on that website? Are you sure you should be spending time with that person alone? That's not healthy. You know, I don't think you should be seeking counsel 
from that woman that's not your wife or that man that's not your husband. There's a lot of areas of life where we can do dumb stuff. And we don't want to sin, but we still want to sin. And we walk too close to the edge. And love says, hey, get away from the edge. You're going to fall. And when you fall, love doesn't say, I told you to get away from the edge. Love rescues. It goes and helps. And says, hey, I got to get you out of this jam. I got to save you from yourself. Jesus saves us from sin, but we save each other from stupidity. Amen? And then afterwards, it is appropriate to say, um, you know, I told you to stay away from the edge. Not in a, in a, you know, hey, I'm better than you kind of thing, but how can we not do this again next time? And if you're a parent, you recognize that with your kids, right? Don't touch that hot stove. It'll burn you. <laughs> ah! But I don't yell at the kid in that moment. I bandage up the finger. And then I say, hey, didn't I tell you not to touch the hot stove? How are we going to not do this again? I ain't touching the hot stove. <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with electric fences, by the way, doing that. Anyhow, that's another story. Christ's church is the means of regular cleansing from that which defiles. You've heard it from me. You don't need to hear it from me. You need to hear it from the word. So uh, wherever you are, find Ephesians. If you're in John, you're going to the right. I think everything that we've looked at, you're going to the right. After Galatians, you find Ephesians. Turn to chapter 4. We'll wrap this up with a few somewhat longer readings, not, not particularly long, but a little bit longer, then we'll call it a day. Ephesians 4, 11, and we'll read into chapter 5. Paul speaking about how things operate in the, Christ, in the church and how Christ has... Um, has given roles and responsibilities to those who serve him. Picking up with verse 11, he says, It was he, Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service. Notice it's not for the clergy to do the work, it's for the clergy, the, those in leadership, to prepare everybody to do the work so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. All right, so the, the picture he's giving is that the church has been given specific roles, people in specific roles, given grace by Christ to do these things so that we as one body, as a household, as a family, can grow up and be everything that we were meant to be. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, love speaks truth, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. He goes on to talk about what that looks like. Verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And that's where we all were. It may look different in you than it looks in me, but it's still a continual lust for more of my own control and less of God. You, however, verse 20, did not come to know Christ that way. And he goes on to talk about how the, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us different. It calls us to a different life. He has saved us from the garbage of this life. Why would we want to go back to that? And he gives a picture of what that looks like, and he'll spend the rest of the, of the letter to the Ephesians talking about that. Jump to the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's going to put flesh on that uh, in verse 21 and following. But just think about what that means. To be imitators of God, not, not to try to you know, earn our way there, but as dearly loved children, because he has made us right with him, we love him and we want to live a life of love like him. Notice what it says. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now we can't be that sacrifice. Jesus is that. He paid it all. He's sufficient. But we are called to live a life of love that gives itself up for one another. That's the call to love one another and to do so in a way that is self-sacrificing. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Turn toward the back to Hebrews. You're only going a really short way because the pages get real skinny or the books get real skinny at the back. Hebrews chapter 10 having already established in chapter 10 that, that uh, Christ's sacrifice is once for all. This is a recurring theme as, uh, as the writer of Hebrews connects the dots between the Old Testament and the New. Now, starting with verse uh, 19, he's talking about what we need to do in light of Christ's sacrifice for us. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, into the most holy place, that is, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. You remember that from Numbers 19 that we're looking at today having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly 
to the hope we profess. Notice that hope is not in the washing. It's not in the ceremonies. It's in Christ. He is the hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we, we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Notice these next two verses. And as you hear this, as you read this, remember that Christ's church is the means of regular cleansing from that which defiles. Verse 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. In James chapter 5, in fact, in your, in your uh, programs, I think I left the chapter out. And there's a typo there. James chapter 5. You don't have to look at all those verses right now, but there's a picture there in verse 16 talking about if we're going to have effective prayer, we're to confess our sins to one another. Now, that's not the, the confession and doing penance kind of thing that, that many of us have grown up with. It's being open with one another. We're walking through this life together. And if I'm trying to hide the things that are in my heart, I can't get clean from them. So because we're walking together, we're open about how we do life. In uh, 19 and 20 of that same chapter, he points out that whoever rescues someone from sin brings them from death to life. Love covers over sin. It is our job not only to rescue those who don't know Christ, but to rescue our own brothers and sisters who are walking too close to the edge. Christ's church is the means of regular cleansing from that which defiles. All right, so wrapping this up, what can I take away from our time here today? The law of the Old Testament was a tool pointing to the new covenant. <coughs> Excuse me. The law of the Old Testament was a tool pointing to the new covenant, helping God's people to understand the defiling nature of sin and the grace of God toward his people, as well as our responsibility to take action against sin's impact in our lives. God has provided in Christ the perfect cleansing for all who will receive it and trust in him alone to have paid it all and to have set us right with God but we're still surrounded by the filth of sin and we get dirty. It doesn't change who we are in Christ, but we can't ignore it. We need to deal with anything that corrupts, defiles, makes us dirty. We're responsible, just as they were in Numbers 19, we are responsible for using what God has given to wash ourselves. And we're responsible to help each other stay clean as well. That's not being judgmental, that's love. We build one another up, spur one another on, and help one another deal with the unclean parts of our lives so that we can together live as the spotless bride of Christ without wrinkle or blemish. But make no mistake, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. There's nothing left to pay. Those who trust in him alone have been made children of God. He paid our debt to the praise of his glorious grace. Now let's walk together in the newness of life that he's given to us. Let's pray. Father, 
you have given us your son. That, that by itself is so mind-boggling. I don't think if I preached a thousand sermons, I could ever possibly convey the power of that reality. That even though we are foul and naked and poor, that you covered us and you have given us hope and life and cleansing. You've given us your word to reveal yourself to us. You've given us your son to save us. You've given us your spirit to guide and empower us and to seal us until Jesus returns. I, Lord, we can't possibly thank you enough for this. Words can never convey it. So Father, help us to thank you with our lives. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but praise God, your son, the perfect one who knew no sin, died in my place to wash it white as snow. We pray in his name.